Gentlemen, good morning. It's good to see you all here, bright and early on a crisp Tuesday morning. And so time is ticking, so let us get into the Word. Uh, this morning we're continuing our men's Bible study. We're in Colossians. We're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 3 in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, given to us in love for our good. What Paul has explained heretofore is who Christ is and who we are in him. In this passage, he takes up how this applies to the familial and personal relations of the believer. See, friends, theology has implications. Good theology leads to good ethics. Bad theology leads to bad ethics. Studying theology is not like studying philosophy or the law. Studying theology is transformative. It changes every aspect of our lives. It's not simply a set of propositions one subscribes to or cold facts that have no bearing Upon life. As Paul has taken pains in this letter, the purpose of good theology is to see God clearly and to eliminate speculation regarding what he is like and what pleases him. The Lord has not left it up to us to figure it out, but in his word, he clearly spells out what he is like and what pleases him, and he has done so in a comprehensive manner. All that we need to know regarding who he, who he is and how to worship him, and here, even down to our close familial relationships. God knows the propensity of fallen creatures and how in the fall our view of him is distorted as well as how we relate to one another. 
Thus, he has provided a comprehensive solution through Christ in how we see him and relate to him, as well as how we relate to one another. In this passage, Paul is writing to a group of believers in a pagan culture. Not only would their faith be under attack, but the very principles that guided their home life would be under attack as well. Discord in familial relations was introduced with the fall, and by the time Paul wrote this, distinct family units were barely recognizable. It was only through Christ that this is corrected. Marriage was not a high priority in the ancient Roman world. There was indeed much discussion as to why marry at all. Hence, marriage was reduced to a means of populating the empire with citizens. So we're going to see that what Paul wrote to the church at Colossae was radical. The home was to be complementarian in order and egalitarian in unity. We shall examine this passage under two headings. First, relation, verses 18 to 22, and motivation, verse 23 to chapter 4, verse 1. This leads us to our first heading, relation. In verses 18 to 22, Paul addresses the Christian household, which consisted of the family unit proper, and this extended to servants as well. God is a God of households. And we see this throughout the scripture. From the covenant with Abraham, including household servants, to the Passover, all the way through the New Testament up to Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer. The household is the basic unit for the covenant community. And we know that the Lord is a God of household salvation. It is the household that forms the schema for the church and is a picture of the kingdom dynamic in the world. We are known as the household of God. The relationship between Christ and his church is seen as a relationship between the husband and the wife. And Paul starts this passage in verse 18 addressing the wives, writing that they are to be there to submit to their husband as is fitting in the Lord. It is no small matter that Paul starts by addressing wives and the issue of submission. Created for the man, the woman was to be subordinate to him as he was to the Lord. But when Eve listened to the serpent, she effectively emancipated herself from her subordination to Adam, which in itself was a sin. She then subsequently led Adam astray. For that, part of her punishment was a desire for dominion over the man. And in the fall, this has been a curse on wives historic, that wives have historically had to deal with. Domineering, controlling, 
jockeying for position with the husband. What Paul writes here addresses this battle for dominance in the household, writing that the wife is to be in submission. Now, the term submission is a hard word. When I think of it, I typically think of two fighters in a cage match where one has to get the other in such a position to where they are forcibly neutralized into no longer being able to fight. But fortunate for us, that's not the way in which the term is used here, and it's certainly not the dynamic for the Christian household. Husbands and wives are not in a cage match. But the term submission is used in the sense of deference, to be inclined towards. So what Paul is aiming for is the undoing of the proclivity introduced by Eve, which spread to all women born of her and Adam toward challenging the man for control. He writes that wives are to be inclined towards their husbands, but with a caveat as is fitting in the Lord. Now, this could mean as becoming one who names the name of the Lord, as well as, as your husband is in submission to the Lord. In the first sense, a woman in this day and age who does not assert her autonomy as Eve did, but rather defers to her husband is a wife who is fitting to the Lord. In the second sense, a woman, who is, a woman is not to be led into sin by her husband under the guise of being in submission, but rather as he seeks and walks with the Lord, she is to follow him. In this day and age, a woman who asserts herself is seen as being strong, perhaps as Eve thought that she was being strong. But there was a deception involved that Eve could not have known. So a wife strongly asserting her autonomy opens a door for all sorts of deception being allowed into the home. It's not a matter of ontological inferiority, but a matter of function. Paul writes, the man was first formed and then the woman. Eve did not receive commands from the Lord. The Lord had given the commands to Adam, whom he entrusted to inform the woman. When Adam deferred to his wife, he repudiated his mediatorial function. And his punishment was that the woman would henceforth offer resistance to his will. So essentially, men and women are the same, but the submission is a matter of function. It in no way ascribes a lesser value to women and a greater value to men. It's simply a matter of earthly mediatorial function. Next, Paul addresses husbands. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul addresses husbands and gives an explicit and direct command Love your wives. You see, friends, the context in which this was written was not a context of a marriage union being a romantic endeavor of two people who enjoyed one another and were committed to one another in acts of selfless devotion. 
In Histoire de la vie privée, translated the history of private life, we get a glimpse into marriage in ancient Rome. Marriage was perceived as a duty among other duties. It was not a matter of establishing a family or setting the course of a life, but one of many dynastic decisions that a noble Roman had to make. The nobleman's wife was not so much his life's companion as the object of a major decision. She was so much an object, in fact, that two noblemen could amicably pass her back and forth. Cato of Utica lent his wife to a friend and later remarried her, picking up an enormous inheritance for his inconvenience. A man by the name of Nero affianced his wife Livia to the future emperor Augustus. Marriage was but one of life's acts, and the wife was but one of the elements of a household. A woman was like a grown child. Her husband was obliged to her to humor her because of her dowry and her noble father. Cicero, in his correspondence, gossip about the caprices of these lifelong adolescents. For a woman to have known only one man in her life was considered a merit, but only the Christians would undertake to make such fidelity a duty. Just as the fallen condition of the woman was to challenge the man for control, the fallen condition of the man was to reduce the woman to a mere object. We see this today with so-called trophy wives, an adornment only serving to stroke the husband's ego. Of course, Paul writes not to be harsh with them because being harsh with someone is easy to do when, re when you reduce them down to a mere object. Their spiritual and emotional well-being is not a concern only to the extent that they suit your purposes. In Christ, our familial mediatorial role as husbands is reestablished. That is, we are to lead our homes in the Lord, especially in regard to our wives. We are the household priests. That is, we intercede on behalf of our wives. We teach them the word. We exemplify it before them. This is our responsibilities as husbands in Christ that Adam neglected. Paul writes of this in Ephesians 5, where we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church, that he gave himself for it. We sacrifice ourselves for our wives' well-being. Their spiritual, emotional, material well-being. They are not our adornments, but we are their shepherds. This does not mean that we cater to their every whim, no more than Christ caters to our every whim. But we lead, we guide, we superintend, facilitate all aspects of their well-being and spiritual growth. We as husbands cannot be our wives everything. And attempting to be so is a fool's errand. Only the Lord can be their everything. We as faithful shepherds, Lovers of their soul, point them to the one who is their everything.
Fellows, I believe the one thing the Lord will hold husbands accountable for when the final reckoning is made on that great day is the spiritual conditions of our wives. Did we treat them as objects or did we give ourselves for them? Did we facilitate their emotional wholeness? Did we meet their physical needs? In other words, did we treat them the way Christ did his bride? Have you truly given yourself for her good? Next, Paul addresses children in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Here, Paul is addressing the fallen condition of youth in relation to their parents. Everyone who either has a child, been around children, or if you yourself was once a child, then you would recognize this condition. When they hit a certain age, they think they know everything. They know better than the parents. Now, Paul is not saying that children need to follow their parents into sin, but where he writes in everything, this simply means in total. And all things common and covenantal. We can compare this to his letter to the church of Ephesians in chapter 6 and verse 1. Where Paul writes they are to obey their parents in the Lord. Calvin writes in all things. That in things they may give deference to the station which their parents occupy. In all things. That they may not put themselves on a footing of equality with their parents in a way of questioning and debating or disputing. Paul next addresses fathers in verse 21. He writes, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. After, children, after telling the children to obey, Paul then turns to fathers and asks them to make it easy to do so. He warns against provoking or irritating youth by overexacting and constant interference or fault finding. Authority is good and necessary, but the perpetual exercise of authority in small things as well as large is disastrous for both the authority and the real good of the children. It prevents growth in the qualities of manhood, womanhood. It discourages and takes away hope of ever being able to please. So it keeps from even the attempt. Paul writes that fathers are not to provoke their children, literally to make them resentful to the point of discouragement where they become disheartened, dispirited, where they disregard all correction and instruction altogether, becoming stubborn, rebellious. Now, brothers, children must be trained. They must be guided. They must be disciplined. They must be restrained, granted. But children are entrusted to us, not for our will to be done, but so that thy will be done. Two ways parents typically fail their children are being overly severe and overly lenient. In such ways, the parent must reflect on how the Heavenly Father deals with his children. He is not so quick 
to punish every act of disobedience with the full weight of his might. Yet he does not allow creaturely whims to develop into habits without real consequences. In either case, if the Lord does not correct us out of anger, but rather for our own good, we should likewise follow suit with our children. From pastor scholar D. Julian Williams, earthly fathers are an introduction to the heavenly father. How your children see you is how they will see God. If you're heavy handed and overbearing, they will see God as a controlling God who cannot be pleased. How God treats us as children is how we treat our children as fathers, gracious, merciful, loving, long suffering and patient, apt to teach, slow to anger. Next Paul addresses bond servants, literally slaves. Verse 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart following the Lord. Now in context, Paul was writing to slaves in the proper sense. Those whose servitude was compulsory and whose value of life was reduced down to what their masters had effectively paid for them. From Histoire de la Vie Privée. Because a slave was owned property, he was an inferior being. And since this inf inferiority of one man, his owner, a man of power, the master, confident in his majesty, consecrated that power by holding that the slave's inferiority was a fact of nature. A slave, it was said, is subhuman by fate and not by accident. Slaves reproduced themselves. Their ranks were swelled by abandoned infants and free men sold into slavery. Children born of a slave mother belonged to her master regardless of who the father was just as the offspring of livestock belong to their owner. So Paul is not writing an endorsement of slavery as much, but rather addressing a real situation. He's addressing people, real human beings, those for whom Christ died on how to live above their present situation. He urges the Christian slave to put conscience into their work, not with eye service as men pleasers. And although they are doing servile tasks, they are not to do so with a servile mind. It is to be done unto the Lord, cheerfully, spontaneously, so what Paul is saying is that when they give themselves to doing what they must, they throw off the outward compulsion and in so doing, they become free men. Robert Hawker puts it like this, wives and husbands and children's and fathers and servants are each called upon to adorn the doctrine of God our savior in all things and the elect of God who are truly and savingly called are and must be living instances of such things wherever they are found. Look round every neighborhood and every house and family and see if there be any who are regenerated by the Holy Ghost 
And sure I am, they are and must be imminent examples of believers in word, conversation, charity, spirit, faith, purity. Friends, what we've read is a tremendous contrast in the home life of the world. Here there is order, unity, deference, humility, genuine love and concern, contrasted with disorder, objectification, jockeying for position, distrust, dislike. The effect of Christ in the home life of the believer is a complete reversal of the sin introduced in the fall where there is true relationship with one another. This leads us to our second heading, motivation. Chapter 3, verse 23 to chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Here, Paul explains what should drive the Christians at Colossae to order their houses so. In verse 23, he tells them, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This language echoes verse 17 in the previous passage where Paul writes of the Christian manner of living. I want to make two observations. First, by restating whatever you do, Paul is being comprehensive. In verses 1 to 17, he's writing on the inner life of the believer. Here, he's writing on the home life of the believer. Whatever you do. There is no bifurcation in the Christian life. We don't live one way privately and another way publicly. The hypocrisy of carnal Christians always comes to bear in the home. You cannot hide who you are from your family. Definitely can't hide it from your wife. You can hide it from people you work with, people you go to church with but you cannot hide it from your wife and your children. We are only to live one life, and that's a life crucified to Christ. And we live that crucified life to Christ everywhere we go, publicly and privately. Second, the you Paul is addressing is not just bondservants or slaves, even though they are the last group that he addresses. But the you in verse 23 is plural, literally, you all. So what Paul is doing is addressing everyone from verse 18 to verse 23, writing, whatever you all do, you work heartily as to the Lord. And he starts this passage with those who have the heaviest burden to bear in the well-being of the household. Typically, those are wives. Down to those who have the least burden to bear in the well-being of the household, the servants. Often, the barometer of the well-being of the household 
is not how we as men measure it, but it's how the wife measures it. Selah. Verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So the wife is a good wife to her husband because that's the lot in life that God has given her. Likewise, the husband, the children, the servants, such. The internal family relations mirrors individual relations with the Lord. This is the home kingdom dynamic. Paul writes the reason we are to do so is because we are serving the Lord Christ. Our families belong to the Lord. We are but earthly superintendents. Our families are either beneficiaries or liabilities of our relationship with the Lord. Our responsibility as husbands is to reflect Christ and lead our families to him, not to be the boss and rule with an iron fist. In verse 25, Paul restates the ontological egalitarian nature of impartiality. Wives will be held accountable to the Lord for how they treated their husbands. Husbands will be held accountable for, to the Lord for how they treated their wives and their children. Children will be held accountable to the Lord for how they treated their parents. Servants will be held accountable to the Lord for how they treated their masters. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul reinforces to masters that though they may have earthly liberties, they are not to take advantage of people because of their station in life. Paul writes that even masters have a master. This is in contrast to the Roman culture when we read that servants were servants because they were inferior beings by nature. Paul flips this notion on its head, stating effectively that servants are servants and masters, and ma masters are masters, but that all are human and none are subhuman. In conclusion, what motivates the inner workings of our household, and by extension, all of our relationships, is that we do it unto the Lord. Maintaining relationships is hard work. That's exactly how Paul characterizes it in verse 23, when he says, work heartily. The word work here in the Greek, ergazomai, means to labor and expend effort. Maintaining a relationship with your wife is labor. It takes effort. You have to put your heart into it. You cannot merely go through the motions. It's hard work. I'm going to end with a quote from 19th century Scottish theologian James Hastings. It's a long quote, but I think he summarizes this passage very well. There comes a certain joy, a certain zest and buoyancy of spirit when whatsoever we do is done heartily is to the Lord. When we are half-hearted, the hours have leaden feet. We become fretful, easily provoked. But when subduing feeling, we turn with our whole energy of soul to grapple with our duty or, our, or with our cross, 
It is wonderful how long shadows we hear unexpectedly, a sound of music. To be half-hearted is to be half-happy. It is to live in a lackluster kind of way. It is to live in an unchristlike way. It is to know little of the joy of Jesus. Was not the joy of Christ linked far down with his wholehearted sacrifice? He never could have spoken of his joy but for his unswerving fidelity to God. And when at last upon the cross there rang out the loud glad cry, it is finished. There was a joy in it because the stupendous work of saving men had been carried through to its triumph and crown. The more heartily we do our duty, the more we feel we're doing it for God. When we remember the thoroughness of the creator's work, when we think of the consummate genius and care that he has lavished on the tiniest weed, when we recall the age-long discipline that was preparing the world for Christ, we feel that the heart of God is in his work. And unless our heart is in our work, we must be out of touch with the creator, the master builder, the thorough and perfect workman. And a half-hearted servant cannot have any kinship with a whole-hearted God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that it would take root, that it would spring up, that it would yield much fruit, that we would be kingdom husbands, that we would have kingdom households, that we would give our wives, give ourselves for our wives, that we would be a patient, loving father with our children, that the world would look at our household and our families and say there's something different about them. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.